I am uh, excited to be with you, sharing God's word, and um, as always, I, I just sat, you know, in my room and just prayed to the Lord and cried that it seems an impossible task to use words to articulate what I know about God, what I've learned from his word, who he is to me how much he loves you, it, it seems impossible. And so that is always on my heart when I come here with that overwhelming responsibility. Um, but I pray that you will just receive what he has to say this morning and, and we will get it together. Um, Hebrews, we're going to start in Hebrews chapter 12. Um, if you have your Bibles, chapter 12 is going to be 11 and 12 where I'm preaching out of this morning. Um, but Hebrews chapter 12, whoop, we're going to need that. And that should be on a side back there if you have it. Oh, there we go. Okay. I want to read you a verse of scripture just at the very beginning. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. This great cloud of witnesses that Paul's speaking about in chapter 12, these are the men and women of faith that were described in the previous chapter, Hebrews 11. For those of you who may be new to the Bible, Hebrews 11 is a chapter of the Bible that's sometimes referred to as a hall of faith, um, where the heroes of faith are mentioned. There's a definition of faith that's given, and then some examples, personal stories, of people in the Bible who demonstrated great faith in God. This would be an awesome chapter of the Bible if you are not um, experienced and maybe you're just getting into the word of God, I would encourage you to read that chapter because there are just little snippets of so many different people of faith and then you could look up their stories and read the more um, elaborated parts in the Bible. But the definition of faith is given in Hebrews 11.1. 1. It says, now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Chapter 11, if you go back to that hall of faith, it talks about how faith was shown by Abel, who offered God his best sacrifice, by Enoch, who was taken away by God and never died, by Noah, who spent likely 20 to 40 years building an ark with absolutely no evidence of a flood but simply because God told him to do it. The chapter talks about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Rahab the prostitute, Gideon, Barak, Samson, David, Samuel, the prophets. And he says, and I could go on and on and on. There are so many. It's an awesome compilation of what God can do through individual people. And it's inspirational. 
Paul is uh, speaking to a group of Hebrew Christians. They are probably second-generation Christians. They are possibly, we learn from commentators, considering giving up the Christian faith and going back to Judaism due to their lack of maturity and biblical foundation. Paul is sharing personal true stories of their ancestors to remind them that they're not alone and to encourage them not to give up. Some people take issue um, that this is referred to as a hall of faith, and I can see why. Because it makes it seem like we're elevating these individuals and that they're, they're some kind of superhumans. Their acts of courage are certainly something to talk about and makes them stand out. But the truth is they're not any different than you and I. In fact, all of them were flawed. Almost all of them disobeyed and failed God at some point in their journey. In fact, some of them were just a downright mess. Remember, one of the individuals in the Hall of Faith is Rahab the prostitute. We have a prostitute among those who is a hero of faith because of her great courage. Their stories are amazing, but they are exactly like us. They're ordinary people who had an opportunity to lead an ordinary life but they chose to have ridiculous faith. And in return, they got to lead an extraordinary life. Each of the men and women of faith in Hebrews were all given promises. The promise was kind of the carrot or the motivation to keep them going, to keep believing. And we need that. You know, we need a word from God. We need a promise that we can hold on to when things don't look so great, right? It's something that keeps us moving forward. It's something that we, we go toward. But faith is more than just believing something. Faith requires us to act on what we say we believe. When God spoke a promise to these individuals, whether it was a promise for their future and their legacy and their children to come, or whether it was a promise to give them a supernatural ability to do something. Some of them were empowered with courage and boldness that was very unnatural. It was supernatural. And they were, they were given that to achieve a victory in the name of God. But no matter what the promise was, they were always challenged with their response. It was always conditional. This is what I've promised you. Now you act like you believe I'm going to do it. That was how it worked. Their obedience, not their verbal yes, was what would be required in order to see the promise. And God required that every one of them Obey his voice even when it didn't make sense. Some things make sense, and some things God asks us to do do not make sense. They defy reasoning. They defy logic. 
They don't seem like the right fit. Listen to a couple of these. Hebrews 11.8. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. So he picked up his entire family and headed out to somewhere he had no idea where he was going. That is my worst nightmare. <laughs> Do not send me out and be like, yeah, I'll just tell you on the way. Uh, no, <laughs> you will not. I must know the plan. Um, God was not sharing the plan. He just said, you're going to move, and I'm going to take you somewhere, and you don't really need to know where it is. Just listen. In Hebrews 11:24, we read about Moses. He willingly left Egypt. Now, he wasn't a slave in Egypt. We think of, well, of course he wanted to leave Egypt. He wanted to get away from Pharaoh. No, Pharaoh was in his house. He was a prince. Moses had been taken in and treated like a king. He was royalty in Pharaoh's house. This was the only home he had ever known. But he left Egypt willingly. And not only did he, he have to leave and try to find somewhere to go, but he ended up leading hundreds of thousands of other people through a desert with the only plan being a cloud and fire. That was his map. Those were his instructions. That's what he got. I can't even lead my family through Disney Park without the mat and like, no, we're all going. That You know how it is. I want to go over here. He's leading hundreds of thousands of people when he was just told you leave and you go. No idea what that huge plan would be in the future. Here's something that's common among all those heroes of faith. They had to leave where they were and go somewhere they did not know. It could have been a physical place. It could have been a job. It could have been a plan they had to leave. It could have been an inheritance. But all of them were asked to leave something to go ahead into something they did not know. Moses and Abraham were both men who were established and had it great. They had to leave their wealth and their financial security behind. They may have been able to take some of their possessions like Abraham did, but they left their homeland and what was rightfully theirs. They left relationships, both friends and family. They left their position, their prestige, they were known in their communities and respected, but now they would have to start all over building a reputation. They left the region and the culture they were accustomed to where they knew who their enemies were and who their allies were. They were defenseless now. In Moses' case, he gave up the power of armies. Not only did he give it up, but those armies would now turn and come after him. And he has nothing but a bunch of Hebrew children and livestock. That's what he has, or so it would seem. 
They were all called to leave it all and simply choose to leave what was visible, the tangible, the real, the reliable, the comfortable. They had to leave all of it for a promise that was invisible. They had nothing to prove that it would happen except God's word, except what he said to them. In each situation, God called them to leave behind what they knew and probably loved in order to embrace what God had for the future. Everything they were asked to leave could not have been bad, right? Because think of that. These were good men. They were living for God. They were listening to God, and he was speaking to them where they were. God was not asking them to leave the past behind because it wasn't significant or it didn't play an important role in their lives. In fact, their pasts were essential in preparation for their future. I believe God strategically places you where you need to be at every season in your life to become who you need to be to go one more step forward. Bob and I are very purposeful in honoring our heritage. Uh, It is a reverent thing to us, the family, the church family, the leaders, the pastors who are a part of who we are. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that that is purposeful and was meant to happen. I adore my childhood, my memories, my church memories, how things were. But I can't stay there. I'm not 12. We can't have the junior choir come up, the Spirit Express, and me sing a solo for you. We could, but it'd be weird. Okay? Does that mean it was bad? Does that mean I'm saying, oh, we're moving forward what we did before? No. It simply means that was then, this is now. Honor it, but move forward. God strategically places us in a moment in history among people we're supposed to be with, doing things we're supposed to do. But once that purpose is served and preparation has been maximized, it is time to move on. Sometimes even good things in our life can become hindrances. If they lead to complacency, then they're no longer good for us. So, for instance, if I have reverenced my seat, which I really never had a seat in church, thank God, but now it's kind of in front because it has to be. But, wow, God has really been moving in my life, and the way he does that is through this church service, and that's my seat, and I love all, and I have to be in the same place doing the same thing for God to move, then that's a problem. Because God may be bringing someone else in to take my seat, and I know he's doing that. And I cannot wait until I'm standing right there on the wall. We've already talked about it. All the staff can just get up here and be awkward. 
can sit in our seats up here if we have to. Things change. We need to be open. Our present ease can become a hindrance in God moving. If you want to be a hero of faith, you must be willing to say goodbye when God tells you it's time to move on. And that's hard. I feel a boys to men song coming on. It's so hard to say goodbye to yesterday. Sorry. I, I thank you. Thank you, thank you. Amen. All right, that just took me over. Couldn't help it. I, want, I would like you all to know my problem with songs. This is way off topic. I once received a speeding ticket because Footloose was on. <laughs> Footloose is my jam. Kick off your Sunday shoes. So if you ever hear it, that's me. I'm like, yeah, I can't dance. I just live vicariously through Footloose. So I'm speeding. I'm about 17. I think Tam knows. I'm 17, 18. Cop, he goes, you know, you were doing, not going to tell you how much, mom and dad. <laughs> you were doing five over. And I said, officer, I know, but Footloose came on. And it is my jam, and I just, I felt it, and I just kept going faster and faster. He said, yeah, you're getting a ticket. I said, thank you. <laughs> it's totally worth it. Anyways, it can be difficult to move on, but moving on is always going to be a part of your life. There are seasons for everything, and there's a time for every purpose, right? Sound familiar? Often our past can be one of the biggest hindrances to moving on to our future. We can either be frozen in our past because we feel hopeless to move on. Maybe, maybe we don't want to let go of it. We're kind of stuck in that pain. And pulling ourselves out of that pain means that it's okay. What happened to me is okay. What they did to me is okay. So every time we kind of step out of it, we pull back because we want to be validated. We want our hurt to be seen. We want people to remember we've been wounded. We can stay in our past. Some of us can stay in our past because it was wonderful, and we don't want it to change. Something as simple as, I love that seat. It's my favorite seat at church. I can really get into it with nobody else in front of me, right? That's just a silly, stupid thing, but you know what? It could stop somebody else from having that seat. If I'm not willing, if I'm not willing to move when God says to move, it can affect someone else. Imagine how awkward it would be in life if we did not move on, okay? There are some things that are just not Right. Can I have number five, Stace? <laughs> this ain't right. <laughs> Do you know that as I was looking for this picture, there is actually a real-life man who went to court for Social Security, and he won because he needs to stay a baby to avoid the trauma. So he drinks babas, 
and he stays in baby clothes. Okay, this is funny, but when you're not a baby, it's just weird. It's ridiculous. Time to move on. You're not a baby. How about this next one? The dad. Now, I'm not trying to rip on you guys because it, it is fun. That's a little pixelated. Nobody tell Bob. Um, the dad, the next one. The dads that have to go to the playground and prove they can do everything the children can do, and you're looking at them, and you're like, yeah, it's like you're too big. You're too big. Move on. Playground time is over. Not just to rip on the guys, but how about the women, the cool mom? <laughs> you know, since boys to men came to mind, I'll just share one more little. I went to a boys to men concert with my, I love boys to men, my sisters. Please do not email me about the evils of boys to men, because I think I will lose it. I only have one vice, it is boys to men. <laughs> and they're pretty clean compared to what you're listening to. Um, but anyways, my, my brother-in-law paid for me and my sisters and James to go to see, um, it was actually New Kids on the Block, I think. This is a New Kids on the Block concert. The best part of the entire concert were the other women there. <laughs> we laughed till we thought we were going to muss our pants. Every new person that came in, we were like, those have to be the jeans she wore 20 years ago, and they don't fit anymore. What are you doing? And people would come out, and, you know, they'd, they were just crazy. And I'm like, girls, man, grow up. Your time is done. It's fine to go to a concert, but you're a mom now. Get it together. Why are you trying to live in the past? And we got tickets to go meet the boys. So here we all come in. And Donnie Wahlberg, honest to God, is sure as, he goes, oh, yes, 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 yes. Because they had seen so many crazy people. We walked in, you know, calmly and just normally. Get her picture. She's like, oh, thank God, yes. And we laughed when we walked out. I go, boy, they were happy to see us. It was like a break, a breather. But moving on is required for the next season of your life. How do we know when God wants us to move on? We know it's time to move on in an area of our life when we sense God is making us uncomfortable. When we're dissatisfied with our status quo when it's just not doing it anymore. He kind of tugs at our heart regarding some aspect of our life. Maybe tugging is that you just know you look ridiculous here, like that adult baby. You look awkward. You don't belong here anymore. Maybe God's telling you in a spiritual sense, you're not a baby anymore. This has gone on too long, and you know it. You know you're kind of acting like a baby spiritually, and you know better. God's called you to more. And you almost stand out to people. Like, 
dude, you've been serving the Lord for 20-some years. Why are we still doing this? Why aren't you leading? Why aren't you modeling? Why aren't you teaching? Why are you still here? God's calling you to kind of grow up. We can't blame other people for our lack of commitment to God. We've made enough excuses about why we can't be committed to the church. It's not the pastor's fault. It's not the board's fault. It's not the person's fault who hurt us. We have to quit running from our calling. We have to start adulting in Jesus. Maybe God's not telling you to grow up. Maybe God is asking you to move on and leave behind a habit. Maybe God's just saying, really, can we stop this now? How many times are we going to go around this? You know you need to give it up. You know I've asked you to lay it down. How many times are we going to do this? We can become indignant when it comes to habits. Because here's the thing. There's this whole gray area where we have to walk out our faith with fear and trembling, the Bible says. So sometimes other Christians might think we need to refrain from something or we need to be doing something, and we can be like, thanks for the opinion, but this is my relationship with God, and I don't feel that way. And that's okay if that's true. But if you've got this kind of pride where you're kind of indignant, and maybe other Christians tell you it's wrong, but God's also telling you it's wrong, don't let your pride stand in the way of your freedom. Listen to the voice of God. If he's asking you to lay it down, lay it down. Say goodbye to it. Maybe it's ambition or possessions or even a relationship. And I'm not talking about commitments that you made legitimately. I don't want you to use this sermon as, yes, I feel the Lord leading me away from my spouse. I shall obey. He, no, that's not God. It may feel better because there are things that can relieve pressure, but that's called a false peace. When we do something to relieve pressure, that's, that's false peace. Peace from God comes when we're obedient. And he starts to do a miracle in our situation. I don't want you to turn your back on those kids that are unsaved. Because you are called to pursue them, to pray for them, to love them. If God is telling you that there is something that's keeping you from where he wants you to go, that's what you let go of. God has big plans for you, but you have to be willing to say goodbye in order to say hello to something new. There are a couple examples in the Bible I was thinking about where individuals uh, knew they needed to say goodbye to something. The first one is the rich young ruler in Mark 10. He comes to Jesus and he asks him, what do I need to do to have eternal life? And Jesus tells him, obey the commandments, and he lists a few of them. And the rich young ruler says, I've done all that. I've really been living good. However, Jesus then turns to him. And what I love about this is it says, Jesus looked at him and he loved him. It's like compassion welled up in Jesus' heart and he, he looked through to his soul 
And he saw that the man really wanted to know him and follow him. So he says, here's what you have to do. You have to give up everything you have and give it to the poor. Jesus wasn't making a blanket declaration to all humanity that if we want to follow him, we have to sell everything we own and give it all to the poor. When Jesus addresses the rich young ruler, it's very personal. Like I said, he looks at him and says he loves him. His heart was broken. Jesus was addressing the one thing he knew was keeping the ruler from experiencing freedom. His weakness was his money. He was a good man. He was following the commandments. He was living a good life. But he knew something was missing. There was more. He wanted to follow Jesus. He wanted to experience everything Jesus was talking about. But he also wanted to hold on to the security of being in control of his possessions. Ultimately, that showed that that was most important to him. Jesus told him bluntly, you cannot have both. This is a blanket statement I think we could deduce from what Jesus said. If you want to experience something extraordinary, you have to be willing to give up the temporal. You can't have both. We want to hold on to the world and have the things we like out of it and have the things we enjoy and have the things that make us comfortable. And we want to be superheroes of faith. We want to come into God's house and experience the presence of God. We want him to use us in mighty ways. We want to experience it. But when we go back home, we want to do what we want to do. It doesn't work that way. You can't have both. You have to choose God's way or your way. And calling out the young man, Jesus exposed his weakness. Maybe the young man never even considered his richness a hindrance to his faith. Money is not a bad thing. And certainly if he was a good man doing good things, I'm sure he probably used his money to do good things for God. I'm sure he shared it. However, Jesus wasn't challenging him to share it. He was telling him, I want you to lay it all down. I want you to give up control of your money. And he couldn't do it. We don't all have issues of control with money, but we all have control issues. There are certain things we completely lay down to God, and there are other things we're like, ah, ah, ah. But my children, I know what they need, <laughs> right? So God, if you could just tell Ella this and Liam this, and instead of you got it, God, they're yours. Our careers, our futures, there is always something in each one of us that we have a problem letting go of that control. Often when Jesus calls us away from the familiar and from what we've known, it exposes our weakness. I want to let you in on a little secret that the enemy does not want you to figure out. Your greatest weakness is your potential area of greatest strength. 
think of that. That was a quote I heard quite a long time ago, I think out of Gideon study with Priscilla Shire, and it just stuck. She says, your weakness is actually a gift. It's a key that unleashes God's power in your life. How do we know this? 2 Corinthians 12, 9 says, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Weakness is an opportunity. It's not an elimination. It's not a disqualifier. It's an opportunity. Let me give you an example. I'm going to share one of my weaknesses. Are you ready? Some of you already probably know this. Fear. Since I was a little girl, out of control, mentally incompetent fear. That could be the thing that cripples me, the thing that keeps me from stepping out, the thing that keeps me up every night, the thing that takes me down rabbit trails about everything, what could happen, what could be, what's coming, the thing that makes me so cautious I miss the moments. You know what I mean? And that happened. I miss the moments. You know how many years I didn't go on Splash Mountain because I don't do any rides? That bunny, what was I missing? I was missing it. In a bigger sense, it could be the thing that keeps me from taking faith risks and seeing the payoff in God. It could be the thing that keeps me hidden from the world so the message of Jesus in me stays quiet. Or, just take this, it could be the thing that allows me to see how dependent I must be on God. It can be the thing that drives me to cling to his word like my life depends on it. Like my mental health and my sanity depend on it. Because you know what? They do. Do you know how I was healed? By taking scripture and saying it over and over and over. By holding it in my hand when I went places. By speaking the truth to my spirit and to my mind and to my heart. It can be the thing that reminds me how completely awesome God is. My weakness, he can take a pathetic, cowardly, emotionally fragile little girl and anoint her to stand and declare, I'm a testimony of God's perfect strength and complete weakness. Amen. I have a choice. I can choose to acknowledge my weakness and that it is an opportunity for God's greatness or I can wallow in it. Why me? Why did God make me like this when other people are so courageous? Other people have it so good. Why me? Why, why, why? Wine, wine, wine. I've done it. I don't know what I'm saying. I've done it. 
We can blame God and get angry about our weaknesses, or we can put them into his hands and allow him to make them a strength. The enemy wants to convince you you're too weak to say goodbye. You can't do it on your own. He wants you to refuse to move on because you're afraid and you're not sure what the future will look like when you leave behind what's been reliable and dependable and in your control. The scripture in Matthew says the young man went away, but he didn't say goodbye to his past. He said goodbye to Jesus. And it says he was sad. The devil convinced him that he couldn't do it. And Jesus mourned because he knew the joy this young man could experience if he took the wealth and put it in the hands of God. What could be done with that? How good could it feel to see what he had being used to save lives and to make a difference? I also think of Lot's wife. In the Bible, she was told to leave the city because it was corrupt. And she was told not to look back. But she took one look back. And she was destroyed. She was turned into a pillar of salt. If God says it's over to go forward and you look back, anything you're going back to is dead. It's over. You can choose to go back to it. You can choose to stay there, but there's no life there. It's over. He told you to move on. One thing the enemy's been doing since the beginning of time is manipulating humans to question God's motives. He wants to mess with our heads like he did with Eve. Eve was given complete and total rule over the garden. It was completely perfect because God had made it. So every piece of fruit was perfect. And she was allowed to have any tree in the entire garden but one. And what did the enemy get her to do? It's kind of stupid, but we do it. Instead of focusing on everything God has provided, we will look at the one thing he tells us not to do and say, why? I need that. I want that. And all along, he's trying to bless us and pour out his best on us. Don't think for a moment that our heroes of faith just walked away and walked on to paradise with no type of disappointment or interruption. They didn't get to walk into like the Wizard of Oz, the Emerald City with posies, and they're like, yeah, yeah, we left our land. We're going to see Jesus. We're going to have a beautiful paradise. This is what was promised. But look at Moses. He was led into the wilderness he had to find housing and food for his family, but now he's leading hundreds of thousands of people. God was fulfilling his promise. He was leading a great nation, but they had no food. It, it just seems like you would be like, what's the deal, God? Great, I'm a great leader. I have hundreds of thousands of followers, and we have nothing to eat. We're all going to die. You know the enemy's chirping. You know he is. Yeah, you've really done it now. 
Now you've taken hundreds of thousands of people and brought them out here and told them God led you. There's no food. Nothing to eat. Land of milk and honey. Yep, looks good. You're right. That was worth it. But Moses prays and God makes manna fall from heaven like dew. They would collect it in the morning and quail would come in the evening to feed them. Here's the funny part. Not funny. Funny, not funny. They would only get enough food for that day. So every night when they went to bed, they had to believe that the next day God was going to do the same thing. He didn't give them a week's worth of food, so they were like, oh, cool. We have enough mandrakes for seven days. We can relax. They could never relax. They could never let their faith down. They had to believe God every single day that he would do what he said he would do. Was that a coincidence? No. It was purposeful because in Deuteronomy 8, he said, he humbled you. This is talking to the Israelites through Moses. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. God brought them into a place where they had no other source but him. He caused them to be hungry so he could feed them. He wanted them to see something no one before them had seen. He was allowing them to experience his miraculous power in a way no one had seen before. They were privileged. God is not leading you into the unknown to scare you. He's leading you into areas of lack and into situations where only the miraculous can rescue you because you're privileged. You're going to be a first-row spectator to see the most personal and miraculous provisions. If we could stop blaming him for that in-between place and start getting excited about what he's up to, maybe we could enjoy the desert just a little bit. God wanted to teach the Israelites how personally and tenderly he cared for them. It wasn't the riches of Egypt that were providing for them, but God himself was feeding them. He wanted them to learn complete and total obedience and dependence on him and learn to trust him. It's in the situations where there's no earthly explanation or no worldly provision that we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God has done something. When God draws us out of the ordinary and takes us on a journey of faith through places we've never seen, he's setting us up to see things we've never seen. In closing, how did these heroes of faith leave everything behind and not look back? Here's why. Hebrews 11 tells us two things. Abraham was able because he was looking forward to a city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. 
Moses regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. And in Hebrews 11:15 and 16, it says, if they had been thinking, and it's talking about the heroes of faith, of that country from which they went out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desired a better country. In other words, if they wanted to, they could have gone back. But they had made up their mind. There was absolutely nothing behind them, no matter how good it was, that would ever compare with what was in front of them. They would continually keep their focus on the promise. Here's the thing. These Old Testament heroes of faith did not see the one promise they were looking for, which was the Messiah. None of them got to see the Messiah come. But we have. We have. We don't have to just look to the heavens, to our home. But the Apostle Paul said, fix your eyes on Jesus. He's the author and perfecter of your faith. You don't have to work it up. You don't have to come up with the faith all your own. Quit trying to be God and drum up faith. You cannot. His job is faith. Your job is obedience. More obedience, more faith. That's how it works. More obedience, more faith. You obey, he gives you a measure of faith. You obey, he gives you a measure of faith. I want to share a scripture that maybe you have not really paid attention to the very end. Hebrews 11.39. It says, these were all commended for their faith. This is at the end of the chapter. Yet none of them received what had been promised. Oh, now you're like, are you kidding me? Right? Because we don't want to be the people who pray our whole life to not see the promise and just have to believe. But listen, God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. The roster is not complete. The reason they haven't seen their faith perfected is because that will happen on the day that every single one of us are in heaven with them rejoicing that the promises were fulfilled. What does that mean? You were created with a destiny. You are being called to be a hero of faith. Why? Our children do not need to look to old people with beehives in heaven as their only witnesses. When there are tangible people in this congregation who can be a wall of witnesses for them right now. There are testimonies in this house. There are things we need to do together. May I show you a photo of what is happening this weekend? These are your babies. They're your babies. They experienced 
God, there's my Bobby right there. She's my spiritual baby. That's one of mine. They're all mine. It doesn't matter. They need you. They need you to be the hero of faith. What is a hero of faith? It is not perfect people. That does not exist. It is people who went through real things who decided not to give up and to believe God no matter what it looked like. Tara, is Tara in here? Get up, Tara Snow. Hero, you want to know why? Pregnant. I was with her for the pictures, saw them with my own eyes. Not going to live. You need to terminate it. Saw the water on the brain. Saw the big mass right here. I saw it with my own eyes. Is Jacob in here? Get up, Jacob. This is that runt that was supposed to be terminated. I remember sitting at Applebee's. Tammy, you were there. And Tara came in, teary-eyed. And me and Tam looked at each other and said, nope. Mm -mm. That was about it. Nope. Uh-uh. No. LeBlanc twins, they're not here today. You know what? Jane, church, heroes. They said your babies are dead. Go home and wait. I said that doesn't make sense. God told me they would live. Yep. I was bewildered. I, would, I didn't know what to do. I was like, this is nonsense. All appearances physically, she was losing the baby. She went in and there were two heartbeats a week later. Right? Joanne, get up. Lost, don't know how many babies. Luz and Bob, she has the Bible that she put her hand in on the way to the hospital, bleeding. When they told her she was losing him, that's your pastor, Pastor Bob. Right? Hero. Hero. Heroes all over the room. Irma, stand up. Hero. Yes. Heroes, people. I could pull each and every one of you up and say hero because you haven't given up. I implore you. God is doing something in this generation. Amen. You are a part of that because you've been praying for it. You raised us. You loved us. You prayed for us. You are among us. We've got to make a decision. I'm going to fix my eyes on Jesus. I'm not going to look to the left or to the right. I'm not going to look at the waves. I'm not going to look at what doesn't make sense. I'm not going to look at my past. I'm going to fix my eyes on Jesus. And if for nothing else to be the heroes of faith for this generation. I am, thank God that there are so many people looking down on me. 
But I don't need to worry about if people are looking down on me, if people are beside me, before me, behind me, and around me. But here's the thing. They don't need to hear whining because I wouldn't want to become that. They don't need to hear, well, maybe God could do it, but no, no, nope. That, this is what they need to hear, no, no, Jacob's going to live, and he's going to be able to pick me up and throw me over his back and carry me out, the little runt, <laughs> right, is going to be able to do that by the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells within me. I can do all things through Christ. Let's stand up. We're going to pray as we dismiss. The worship team will play us out one song. God, I thank you for these men and women of faith. God, none of us are perfect, but the heroes of faith that you gave us in the word were a messed up bunch. They betrayed you. They were murderers. They were adulterers, prostitutes, doubters, fearful, told you no, told you they couldn't do it. But when they finally surrendered their weakness to you, you showed awesome strength. God, make this church a church of heroes of the faith. That we never give up. That we never stop acting in ridiculous faith. But we always choose to trust you, to give you the glory when we're in the desert, and to give you the glory when you take us into the promised land. Anoint us, Lord. Anoint us. Touch our children. God, as they come back, and even those that did not go, our young adults, God, you said now. Now is the time. We're not believing it's coming in a year. We're not believing it's coming in three years because some of them don't even have a couple months. They're in a bad way, and they need to be changed by your Holy Spirit. We thank you, God. We worship you.